Boom. Well, good morning and good morning. How's everyone doing today? We good? Awesome. Anyone else rocking a flannel this morning in honor of fall being here? Just, just me? How, you, how do you know when it's flannel season when it gets below 70 degrees? Amen? So I jumped the gun a little bit early. I'm kind of sweating. AC is like at 65 degrees. Uh, real quick shout out. Um, it is my wife's birthday and, and, and also Scott Dolney's birthday. So they're going to come up here, give an impromptu speech, and then we're going to sing happy birthday. Just kidding. Uh, just, she's in the nursery, but make sure you uh, give them a fist bump, high five, and tell them happy birthday. Um, so give you that shout out, whether you like it or not. All right. Um, we are in Acts 10, 1 through 23. So turn to your Bibles. Believe it or not, no surprise, no shocker here. If this is your first time at the transit since February, we've been going through the book of Acts, which is um, just, uh, just the history of what God's people did after Christ uh, uh, was crucified. He rose on the third day from the grave, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And, and now we have this beautiful history uh, that Luke, the author of Acts, has given us to show us all that the Holy Spirit did in and through his people. And so quick disclaimer, for the next two to three weeks, we'll kind of be in the same narrative, looking at this interaction between Peter and, Cor- and the Gentile Cornelius uh, all the way into Acts 11, so, so about three weeks, we're going to be looking at this narrative, looking at kind of how um, what we're looking at today is the first step of the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, that historic divide and hostility come crashing to the ground because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to talk more about uh, the Jew-Gentile distinction and the history of the next couple weeks. Today, my focus is going to be this. The title of my sermon is God's Sovereignty and Our Responsibility. God's Sovereignty and our responsibility. And what we see in our text today is this um, beautiful dance, if you will, between a sovereign king who has a plan, and he has the power and the authority to implement that plan. And he implements that plan. Yes, I love that. Thank you. (laughs) Baby on the loose over here. Uh, And he implements that plan in and through his people. So we see this beautiful dance of God uh, 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 appearing and commissioning uh, a Gentile, in Caesarea named Cornelius, and appearing to Peter, Jewish Peter, and Joppa, and, and, and bridging the Jews and Gentiles together as he's initiating this. And they're just responding to God's action. And that's kind of what we see in the whole book of Acts, is that God, the Holy Spirit, is the primary actor, the primary agent, the primary implementer, and God's people are just responding to the sovereign Lord's leadership, okay? So that's what we're going to be focusing on today, is we're going to see God's activity and our response, and the main thrust of my sermon this morning is going to be this, is that the appropriate response to God's sovereignty is not apathy, it's actually activity. It's, it's activity, it's action, it's a life laid down to our sovereign Lord saying, here I am, send me. So let's read this. We're going to read all 23 verses uh, together. Uh, you don't have to read it out loud uh, with me together. Um, you probably lose your voice if you did that. Uh, but I'm going to read this, and we're going to pray, and we're going to dive in. And so let's, uh, let's read this. Verses will be on the screen. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, And he stared at him in terror, which is the appropriate response, and said, What is it, Lord? And the angel said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, 
whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he, Cornelius, called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Trigger warning to vegans out there. Sorry. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit, said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in to be his guests. Let's pray. Father, help us to see what you intended for us to see when your Holy Spirit inspired this, God. How beautifully you move. How wonderfully you move. How you're a God who is not a deistic God, who's distant. But you're a God who's intimate and present and clearly at work in the midst of his people. So thank you, Lord, that we worship a God who's seated on the throne, who has a plan, who has a perspective that we can't see. Thank you for the mystery of that, God. And Lord, thank you that you give us, Lord, today, you give us the beautiful invitation to approach the throne of grace with confidence. That you hear us and you're present with us and we can come boldly because our sins are covered, washed clean by the cross of Jesus Christ. That we're here today and we're righteous, we're beloved, we're cleansed, we're forgiven, our sins is what is snow. Thank you for your presence. Jesus, may you be glorified. May you be magnified. Show us your beauty. Show us your glory today. May this all truly be about you. Pray you would increase in our lives and we would decrease. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, all right. Who here enjoys a good wedding? Anyone here enjoy a good wedding? Yeah. Yeah, some of you. Man, not a lot of people. Wow. One guy in the sound booth and like two over here. Okay. Jeez. Okay. What's the secret? Okay, maybe you haven't been to many good weddings. What's the secret to it? What are some of the secrets to a good wedding, a great wedding? Good music. Okay, music, food, amen, weather, absolutely. What's it? Dancing, 
Yes. Um, not having a nice family. <laughs> Jew, Gentile, this, yeah, 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 you could get a little tricky there. Uh, uh, there's, yeah, the in-laws hostility, in-law hostility. Uh, yeah, nobody's mentioned one of the greatest keys to a great wedding is having a great wedding coordinator. You know what I'm talking about? So as a pastor, one, obviously I'm married. Um, so I've been, I, I've gotten married, so I've been at a wedding. And my wedding was, my wedding was awesome. Um, <laughs> slightly biased. Um, but secondly, because I'm a, a, a pastor, I've officiated lots of weddings. I've been involved in officiating some weddings. And then uh, thirdly, I've been part of a wedding as a groomsman or whatever. And I have seen weddings, the hinge of a good wedding, hinge on whether there's a good wedding coordinator or some, sometimes there's, there's zero wedding coordinator at all. Okay? And now listen, listen. If you're here dating, you're about to get married, listen. This is why a wedding coordinator is so crucial. If you get a bunch of groomsmen together the day of a wedding and they do not have a leader and a sovereign to tell them what to do, they will sleep in. True story, they will just get Mario Kart in a side room in the church, drink some bourbon and play Mario Kart before the big day. Some of these dudes don't even know how to tie a tie. So they're asking the wedding coordinator to come in and tie a tie. Meanwhile, the bridesmaid, you know, they've been preparing for this day for 25 years. You know? <laughs> they've been up <laughs> They've been up since 2 a.m. getting their hair and makeup on. They're all holding hands, interceding before the Lord for two hours. And the dudes are, you know, the dudes are cranking out blue shells on Mario Kart to each other. And that's why you need a wedding coordinator, all right? They have to be led, okay? And uh, the key, the key to a good wedding coordinator is this, is you need one sovereign, over the event because there's a whole lot going on there's a whole lot of people involved hundreds of people involved who are just attending some people have roles to play in the wedding and the reason you need one is this is because you need one person who can see the whole picture from start to finish all the people involved, all the resources needed, the timeline events, all the events needed. And this person must have the, the logistical com competency and supreme authority to make these plans come to fruition, listen, through the free agency of human beings under their authority, right? People who can say no. And sometimes you're drunk, okay? Like, I mean, just being honest, I've been to a wedding, I'm not, you know, I'm not... I'm not endorsing that. I'm just saying those are the facts of the matter. At our old church, we had a professional wedding coordinator. Her name was Diana White, uh, and uh, she was the best wedding coordinator I've ever seen. She was like the general patent of wedding coordinators, okay? Logistical competency of a, of a general, okay? Uh, supreme authority and supernatural energy, power to implement this plan. And so she would go up to anyone at any time in the wedding and say, this is what you're going to do. You're going to stand here, this, you're going to put your hand over here, like that. And she would just come up and start barking orders. And it was amazing. And everyone knew that they had to listen to her because she was the authority. She was the sovereign of that event. And the result of that with my wedding was it was a huge success. And everyone had a great time. It was awesome, okay? And if you need a good wedding coordinator, her name is Diana White. And she won't do it for free for you. But if you mention Pastor Nick, maybe she'll give you a discount, okay? Uh, so all that to say, Transit Church, Transit Family, there's a wedding coming for us. There's a wedding, Revelation 19. We're going to conclude with it. I'm not going to share the verse now, but it's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. We're the bride of Christ, made up of people from every tribe, every color, Every language, every tongue, every nation will come together and do what, listen, this is, what, this is why we gather, right? I'm getting ahead. I was going to share this a communion. Dang it. Um, this is a foreshadowing of what's to come. 
This is the dress rehearsal. This is the rehearsal dinner. Every Sunday we gather and we share the Lord's meal, communion, and we sing his praises. It's the dress rehearsal. We're going to be doing this with each other forever. Revelation 19, and now I need to figure out a new conclusion. Um, okay? It's a beautiful picture. We're both Jewish believers, Gentile believers, will be clinking glasses and celebrating the work of their king who's reconciled them in one body to himself and he saved them out of darkness into marvelous light. And watch this. Until that wedding comes, the sovereign Lord is actively at work across the globe coordinating this event through his trusted servants, the church. He's coordinating this event. He's preparing the bride. He's preparing the nations for this event. And if people from all tribes and all nations and all tongues will be at this wedding feast, one of the first things in the first century that needs to happen is the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles need to be destroyed. It needs to be torn down in Christ's name. We'll talk more about that, that, that next week, but in our text today, we see God, the, the sovereign wedding coordinator, actively at work making this day happen. So what I want to do for the first part of my sermon is take a moment, before we jump into like Peter and Cornelius and everything they've done, I want to take a moment to look at this text from God's perspective and behold our king and be blown away by his sovereignty. So there's a map I'm going to show real quick. And, and uh, can you pull that map up on the screen? And uh, I'm going to jump over here. You can keep me on the camera if you can see it so they, people on the live stream can see. So last week we were in Acts 9. Peter was in Jerusalem. Watch this. The second Peter leaves Jerusalem, God's already ahead of him in Caesarea. Are you tracking with me? That's how our God works. Oh, oh, I was just told to leave Jerusalem. Okay, God's, God's months ahead of him in Caesarea. We're prepping the heart of Cornelius, okay? So Peter is walking into a trap. He's walking into a trap, and then he goes to Lydda. He travels all the way to Lydda. What happens in Lydda last week is uh, Peter finds a man who's been paralyzed for eight years. Jesus Remember, faith is always in action. Peter knew that Jesus was present and able and trustworthy. Aeneas gets some new knees. And for the glory of Jesus, he, he walks again. And a ton of people come to know Jesus in Lydda. And, and the text kind of gives the impression that Peter goes, okay, sweet. Everyone came to know Jesus. And maybe Peter's about to head east back to Jerusalem. Go see his wife and kids at home. See his family. And then all of a sudden, the Lord's at work in Joppa. Drawing Peter to Joppa. People get sent. Word, gets, word spreads that Peter, the Lord's moving powerfully at Lydda. People come running and begging, Peter, come, come. There's this lady, Dorcas, who's, you know, we could say dead as a doornail Dorcas. She's dead in Joppa, right? And she, they prepared her body for burial. She's in the upper room. They're already weeping and mourning and wailing. And Peter comes and the resurrected king resurrects Dorcas from the grave. And all of Joppa comes to know Jesus. And not, Acts 9.43 ends with this. And Peter was, saying, was staying with one man named Simon the Tanner. For you Gen Zers out there uh, in the first century, uh, a Tanner was not someone who owned a tanning salon. Okay, so it's someone who turned dead carcasses into leather, uh, skin into leather. Right, so just clear the air. So that's what a Tanner is. Don't look at the picture of Peter on the Mediterranean with some reflecting things. Anyways, all right. So Peter's in Joppa, hanging out at his Airbnb, probably still ministering in Joppa. And meanwhile, in Caesarea, we get into our text. And the sovereign Lord, and by the way, who, Lord only knows what's happening in Samaria, right? Philip and Acts say, only who knows what's happening there in Samaria? Who knows what's happening all the way down in Ethiopia with the Ethiopian eunuch? And who knows what's, you know, who knows, who knows right? But the Lord appears in Caesarea to Cornelius. 
who the scriptures say was a Roman soldier. Not only was he a Gentile, yes, he was a devout man, but we know he wasn't fully converted to Judaism, okay? He wasn't circumcised. He was still a Gentile, which we'll see later in the text. And so Jews wouldn't eat with him. They wouldn't try to associate with him that much because there were just cultural things he didn't do. And so the Lord appears to him. He was a devout man. And the Lord appears to him, gives him a vision. The Lord sends an angel to scare the toga off of this guy. Says he was terrified. And uh, the, the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, listen, I got, the sovereign Lord appears and says, I got plans. I'm sovereign. There's a timeline of events. I'm working things out. And I'm using you uh, to, to enact this plan. And he says, go send people to Joppa and come bring back to me uh, a, a man named Simon who's staying uh, at, uh, you know, Simon the Tanner's house. And so Cornelius and Caesarea sends two of his servants and a Roman soldier, okay, a Roman soldier. Rome, the enemy of the Israelites, the oppressors, a Roman soldier. So they're heading southbound. And why, they, why the Lord has loosed them, look at this, look at the logistics of our sovereign God. As the Lord has loosed them, I mean, you think about it, you think about when's the timing? When's the timing? Like the Lord's picking this out and it's like, boom, now give the vision to Peter, Right? Not too early, not too late, just on time. Peter says in the text, he was a man of prayer, so he's praying. And says he was hungry, okay? And as he's praying, he falls into a trance where he's hungry and he's dreaming about food. Anyone been there? Yes, okay? And so Peter falls into this trance, and it's, it's um, the classic pigs in a blanket vision. You know what I'm talking about? Okay? This, this, <laughs> this blanket with pork and bacon and and chicken and you know and uh there's some reptiles in there that's kind of weird anyways but it's descending from heaven and a command comes to peter rise kill and eat make yourself some bacon for the glory of jesus uh today right? and then peter i love peter man even even when peter's in a trance and had like peter's still peter right he's still like arguing with the lord i love peter and he's like i never lord Far be it from me, oh God, I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not going to eat an iguana or a pig. I'm not going to eat any of that. And the Lord says, clear as day, he says, don't you dare call common or call uh, unclean what I've declared to be clean. What God calls common, don't you dare call unclean. And what we're going to see in that text is that, the Lord's, Lord ain't just talking about food laws. He's talking about people group. Yeah, hey, people group. Lord, Lord's shaking and baking Peter a little bit, all right? And then, and then it happens a third time because Peter's still contending with this. And then Peter gets this. So look at, look at the logistics here. This is our sovereign Lord. He's got a plan. Timeline of events. Boom. Lydda. Timing of the Joppa. Boom, boom, boom. He's in Samaria. The Lord is at work. The wedding coordinator is preparing his people for this. And, and we're just responding, right? Peter and Cornelius are just responding in this, okay? And then uh, as Peter kind of awakens from his trance, his vision, all of a sudden he gets a knock at the door. And maybe he looks down from the rooftop, maybe he's still on the rooftop, and he sees some Gentiles and a Roman soldier, okay? And the Holy Spirit directly speaks to Peter in the text, and the Holy Spirit says something to the effect of, this is not an Amway scheme. They are not selling you Cutco knives. The Lord himself, I have sent them to you, and you better open your door to these Gentiles immediately, and you will go with them, because I've sent them to you. And Peter goes, got it. Because Peter was perplexed. Peter, there was a hesitation. Peter was perplexed because the vision he got, which he thought was from the Lord, he believed was from the Lord, there was a tension there because it went against everything he was taught as a Jewish kid. Everything he went against, the Lord saying, hey, there's something new here. This is the new covenant. And so that, all that to say, all that to say is this, is look at the beautiful coordination of our King Jesus. He's given the commands, he's given the visions, the oversight, the instructions at just the right time. He's three towns ahead, three cities ahead of Peter the second he gets out of Jerusalem, right? 
and often in our faith journey, we get so uh, uh, nearsighted and, and, and sorry, not, not just even three towns, but thousands of years ahead of Peter. Because with the event that we just read about and we're going to read about is cataclysmic for the church. It's earth shattering. Walls uh, crashing down of ethnic hostility and the gospel going to the nations. This is a pivotal moment in the history of the world. And often we get so nearsighted, so self-focused, we only see things from our perspective. But I think it serves us well to stop and stare today and behold our sovereign Lord and realize that, hey, he is not sitting on his hands. Listen, our sovereign Lord means that he has a plan. He has a list of names. He's got a list of events. There is a timeline. He is in control, and he and his sovereignty is enacting that plan. Okay? And the application there, then, is this, is that we believe he's at work in Landmark. We believe he's at work in Burke. We believe he's at work in Dumfries. We believe he's at work in Mozambique. We believe he's at work in Afghanistan, in Iran, in China, across the world, in his foreknowledge and his sovereignty, working out his plans for his good, for our good, and for his glory. Okay? Amen? Amen. And so then, this is the million-dollar question, what then is our response to his sovereignty? And I think one of the biggest tragedies in the church today is what I call the do-nothing Christianity, right? The do-nothing Christianity, because God is a God of grace and God is sovereign. So um, there's kind of two camps that you can fall into. You can fall into legalism, which is basically I do so that I am saved, um, and then the other camp would be, that was this end of the spectrum, the other camp would be kind of license or antinomianism, meaning anti-nomos, anti-law, that, hey, I really love to sin, and God is a God of grace, so we're going to have a really great partnership with this whole thing, right? We're going to get along really well. And in the past, if you listen to a sermon series on Galatians, pastors will use the, the we're not about legalism, we're not about license, it's about liberty, right? And they're going to Galatians 5, 1, uh, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. That's well and good, right? But the problem, I think, that we have in the church today is that we love the word liberty, but in our sinful flesh, we misconstrue it to mean autonomy. To mean autom- autonomy. When in fact, the liberty that Jesus brings is he finally sets us free from the shackles of sin so we can be free to love, serve, and obey him. That's what true freedom is. True freedom is, is Luke 9. True freedom is Jesus saying, Take up your cross, deny yourself, lay down your rights, lay down your autonomy, give it fully to me. And when you do that, that's when you find the secret, the true life. That's, that's a, we've been, as created beings, you're either part of the kingdom of darkness, with the prince of the power of the air as your ruler, or you're rescued and ransomed and you're given a new king and a new kingdom. You're given a new kingdom to love and serve and a new kingdom to advance, right? And so instead of it being... Not legalism or license, but liberty. Eat, drink, and be merry. God is sovereign. He's full of grace. Do whatever you want. No, 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 no. I was going to say lordship, and the Lord told me this morning, don't say lordship. Say love. It's not, because watch this. Look at the self-focus of all three of those things I mentioned. Antinomianism, a license is is, is self-worship. It's idolatry. I get to do whatever I want. And I bow down before no one but me. That's license. And then over here, legalism is, it's all about me and my good works, and I'm going to puff out my chest and say, God, look at how awesome I am, and look down on others, it's all about me. And even with liberty, if we don't want to serve Jesus, but we're all about our freedom in Christ, then in fact, then in fact, it's still about us. But if we bow down in love to our king, who laid down his life for us, Jesus says this, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And what the apostle Paul says, 
It says, I make it my aim to please God. I make it my aim to please God. Okay? And so our response to God's love, exactly like the worship team was singing this morning, our response first to God's love is all he asks is to love him in return. It's to love him in return. And I recently read one of the best books I've read in a long time in 2020. It's one of the best books until I read the last chapter and I almost threw it across the room. Um, so I'm not going to name it, and it's really good, and the author loves Jesus. I'm not trying to trash anything, and I'm not trying to name it so you all uh, know it. But the, the book ends, it's all about Jesus, and the book ends with this. What should our response be to everything I said? And the response is this. I kid you not. Do nothing. Yeah, 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 do nothing. I mean, legit, it's, it's, in, it's in the ink and the page. And, um, and then he compares, he uses this illustration. And God bless him, Lord, I'm not trying to be an accuser of the brethren. But I'm trying to, I am trying to save, uh, I'm trying to shepherd my flock from error. Not heresy, error. He uses this illustration of uh, beholding a sunset. What do you do? What do you, how are you supposed to respond to a beautiful sunset? You just sit still and you bask in the glory and do nothing. And that's what you're to do. And the only pro- and I get what he's getting at, right? Like we behold our kings, I get it, I get it, right? Um, but there's a lot of problems with that. And one of the small problems with that is Jesus, our king, is not a sunset. He's a person. He's a king to be loved and worshipped. He's a person to know and to seek after. And he's a king of a kingdom that he's commissioned us to preach the gospel, cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead. He has work to do, church. And, 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 and what we need to preach the full counsel of God here at the church is, is, is the bride of Christ needs to understand that there is still a day of judgment coming, both for believers and non-believers, where we will stand before the Lord, and it's all nothing but the blood of Jesus, but we will give an account for how we stewarded the salvation that he's entrusted to us. I mean, just go read the parable of the talents, right? And you can't quote 2020 theologians and say, well, Lord, I was told to do nothing, right? I was told to just sit on my hands and, and, and do nothing. And so in contrast to the do-nothing Christianity, and listen, when I'm, there's another book that um, was trending a while ago called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And <clears throat> when you're talking about justification by faith, when you're talking about salvation, amen. It's Christ alone. All we contribute is our sin, and Christ does the rest, right? But when it comes to sanctification, our following Jesus, you can't, you can't do that with the scriptures. And by the way, the author, mm, I'm not going to say it. Don't read that book. <laughs> don't read that book imagine on it's about love church it's about love of Christ and when you sit on the altar if you're married before God and pledge your covenant faithfulness to, to so you're standing across from Jesus and, and say he says I give you everything look at my nail scarred hands look at my, the, 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 the spear on my side look at the, 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 the scars on my feet I've laid down everything for you and then we think Theologians have the audacity to think that this glorifies Jesus. And they, and they tell a ton of people, it gets published, everyone's on board with it. And then we get to go look at Jesus and say, awesome, I give you nothing. My, my, my. Woo, is that a response to grace? Is that a response to the sacrificial love? God pouring out his heart on the cross, giving his son? I give you nothing. And we think that glorifies him. How, in what covenantal relationship does that ever glorify anyone? Right? And God is, I'm not trying to condemn anyone. I'm just trying to correct error that, that, has, been, that has infiltrated the church, which is a, a gospel of cheap grace, okay? And I know this is a heavy message. It's not, it's not a message of condemnation, but it's a, it's a message of invitation into love. And God is gracious, okay? So this is how we respond. 
to his love. Okay, his relationship, his relationship. How do we respond? I think we see three principles in our text. That was a long, longer rant than I expected. So, uh, one, we are to seek diligently after the Lord. We get to pursue God. If we were to look at our text and ask, why did Peter and Cornelius get visions and visitations? Yes, God is sovereign, and he could have knocked their socks off when they're eight hours into binge-watching The Office, right? He could have done that. But what we see in our text, what the Holy Spirit makes explicitly clear in our text, is it's because they were praying. The inescapable deduction that, uh, that these visions came about through was is through their prayers. Look at, don't take my word for it, look at um, verses 2 and verses 4. Cornelius, a devout man who feared God with all his household, he gave alms generously to the people and watch this, and prayed continually to God. And then look at verse four. Look at what the angel says to Cornelius. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial to God. As a memorial to God, just like we sang today. Day and night, night and day, let incense arise. Right? What we see there, this is what's a memorial offering. It's kind of linked to the Levitical priesthood and Levitical sacrifices. This is what one commentator says. It's an offering made in commemoration to God that God accepts as pleasing. So the the devotion of Cornelius, his heart seeking after the Lord, brought a smile to God's faith because he's not a robot, he's a person. It was like when a kid works really hard and they make you these like, you know, these, these drawings and you put them on your fridge, it's pleasing, you know, it's, it's the father's heart towards his kids. But we see this also in Revelation 8, 3 through 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with what? What was, what was it full of? The prayers of all the saints. On the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So there's a mystery here. But our prayers do something. Our prayers do something, right? We see causation of visitations linked to prayer for both Cornelius and Peter. And this is what I, say, what I want to say too, is that our works and our prayers are not meritorious unto salvation, but we can live lives pleasing to God. And in the Reform camp, I'm stealing this from a professor at RTS, Reform Theological Seminary, and he says often in, with Reform theology, when we emphasize total depravity, is where the common refrain is, all of your works are filthy rags. Everything you do is trash before God, is often how it's preached. That you can't live a life pleasing to God. Don't even try to, do, don't even try to be obedient to Jesus because even it's so infiltrated with sin, it won't please God. And, and what my professor at RTS said, and, and the most well-respected professor there, said that is completely bogus. As sons and daughters, you can live a life that's pleasing unto the Lord. You can please him. You can bring a smile to his face when husbands go low and they serve their brides and serve their families. When we go in love and boldness and serve our neighbor, or when we even just carve out time out of our busy schedules to get on our face just even for five minutes before our days before God. Brings a smile to his face. We can live lives that are pleasing to God. And then Cornelius, not just Cornelius, but Peter, Acts 10, 9. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. It was the moment where Peter was seeking the face of the Lord that the trance, the vision came. And so the bottom line is this. And, you know, there's a, I'm, not, I'm not promising everyone that if you go seek the Lord, you're going to get these crazy visions and all this stuff. Um, but I'm not saying you're not either. I'm not saying you're not either, right? I'm talking about this a little bit, but... Uh, bottom line, throughout Scripture, God invites us to pursue Him and seek His face. Not to sit back and just do nothing, 
but to in love chase after him, to fight the good fight of faith. Look we'll at all these verses. I had to take out, I had to take out five verses for the sake of time, so you can thank me. I'll read through these quickly. First Chronicles 16:11. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Jeremiah 20, 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. James 4, 8. Look at this promise from God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you relationally. Look at Matthew 22, 37 through 38, 38, the greatest commandment. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, other gospels strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, okay? Why would God invite us to seek his presence and chase after him? Because he loves us and he wants to spend time with us because he died on the cross, absorbing the full wrath of sin just to be in fellowship with you forever. And so the invite, it's not, we get so burdened, we're like, oh man, I gotta seek the Lord, all this stuff. It's God wooing your heart, saying, I'm here, talk to me. I died for you. Surely if God gave his son, surely he wants to spend time with you. Surely he wants to hear with you. Surely he'd love to hear what's on your mind and let you know that he's present with you. It's the most beautiful thing that God can ever invite to anyone to is to seek his face. Because where else in the world will you go for everlasting life? Where else can a weary soul go to get refreshment? Where else can a sinner go get to get forgiveness? But the Lord inviting, saying, seek me if you want life. It's only in me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There is no other hope for humanity. And there is no other, heart for a, uh, uh, there's no other, no other hope for a burdened, disillusioned, doubtful heart than the heart of Jesus crying out on the cross. It is finished. And now come to me. Come to me, right? That's the heart of God. It's the most beautiful invitation that he could give to us this morning is to seek him, to stop seeking other things. So secondly, when we seek him, we need to listen intently to his voice. One of the reasons, so, so one, application three principles, we see that they were seeking the Lord, seeking diligently. Two, we see that they were listening, listening intently, listening intently. One of the reasons we don't pray is because we don't expect God to speak. And so therefore, we don't listen. And a lot of times teaching on prayer, um, it, 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 we talk about it as a discipline. We talk about how it's just, it's just doing something. It's just sanctifying for us. So it's just kind of self-focused. And I even heard a podcast to pastors, again, not trying to, to accuse the brethren or whatever, but they said, they said one of the reasons prayer is so hard for pastors is because God doesn't speak audibly anymore. Yeah, and I go, I go, I might be, I, I forget what I said. And it's probably good for all of us that I forgot what I said when I heard that. But I said, well, why do you just assume that everyone's on board with you saying God doesn't speak audibly anymore when I know multiple people in this church who have heard the audible voice of God? Who are you to say that? I just all assumed. And, it's, and all these pastors are listening to it, right? Oh my gosh, that's not the God I worship and serve. I worship a God and, uh, I worship and serve a God who speaks and speaks a whole lot more than I can ever dare think or imagine. And what we see in our text, and maybe one of the reasons prayer is so hard is because we ask, we go this, uh, what if I pray and he doesn't show up? What if you pray and he does show up? And knocks your socks off and rocks your world and reveals the depths of his love for you. That changes everything. There's sometimes I pray, he doesn't show up. Open the word. And I know he's there and I know, take faith, he hears my prayers. And there's times where he shows up, church. And that's what drives us. What if he doesn't show up? What if the sovereign Lord does show up? Okay? And then secondly, 
Peter and Cornelius were not mastering the art of prayer. They were seeking the Lord through prayer. And he showed up and he spoke. Okay? And um, let's talk about some application. One of the reasons we have a disconnect where we say, man, my life, we'll be going through Acts, my life doesn't look like the believer's lives in Acts. Why is that? Why is my life so different than what they're experiencing? And I, and I have this thought, maybe it's because our prayer life doesn't look like the prayer life of the people in Acts. Right? I know it's kind of harsh, right? It's kind of heavy. I sit under that. I sit on it. I'm no prayer warrior, okay? I sit, that, sit under that as well. And two, twofold, simple application. One, today, if you want to seek the Lord and listen to his voice, the first thing we need to do is we need to rid ourselves of distractions. In this season, I've been extremely busy. I've been on my phone a lot. I've been on the computer a lot. Um, and my wife, Jen, who is present with me and loves me and speaks to me, I have often been distracted. And I'll be on my phone sending a text or looking at my calendar or whatever, and she'll speak, and she'll speak again. And I have no idea. She's not here, so I can share this. And... Um, and I have no idea what she says. And she goes, did you hear anything I just said? And I go, oh my gosh, I got caught. I'm going, uh, yes, you said when the angels win the World Series, we'll drop the kids off. I have no idea what you say. Sorry, I, I, don't, <laughs> I got nothing, right? But see, the problem wasn't, you all know where I'm going with this, right? The problem wasn't her lack of, the lack of presence or the lack of a voice. The problem was I was just distracted. John Mark Comer has a, uh, one of the, an extremely important book for everyone to read called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. This is what he says. He says, the greatest threat to Christianity today in 2020 is not this agenda, this whatever, this, this global threat. The greatest threat, to, the single greatest threat to Christianity is the iPhone, is what he says. Why? Because, because what Christians need is to learn how to abide with Christ. And if we can't sit with Jesus and hear his voice and be prompted by his spirit, then we, have, we don't have a lot to offer a world. And so he, so he talks about the ruthless elimination of being distracted and busy. So first, get rid of the voices. Turn down the volume of other voices so you can listen intently. And then secondly, so rid yourself of distractions. And secondly, reframe how you spend your time with the Lord. I've had to do this. As I'm kind of new to this and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, the Lord's still working in me, right? Uh, what, I've, what I've had a tendency to do now is instead of me just jumping up into the word, which is great, read your Bibles and journaling, often now what, all, what, I, what I'd encourage you all to do is play some worship music and worship Jesus and spend time in prayer, seeking him in prayer, priming your heart, inviting the Holy Spirit to come in. And if you feel a disconnect there, do what I, I'll just invite you to do what I do. Say, Holy Spirit, come and convict me. If there's any way I'm quenching your spirit, if there's any uh, uh, impurity in my heart, the pure in heart will see God come in and, and reveal that so I can repent, so I can have loving communion with you. I can hear your voice. And you'll, you, you want to hear God's voice, you'll hear his voice, okay? <laughs> right? And then get in the word, right? Or mix it up, get in the word journal, but, but make sure you add in just as much time in prayer. You don't have to pray on your knees standing still. One of the reasons when Jen's giving me a hard time about this, when I start praying, I start like pacing and all this stuff, is the reason why I do that is because when I pray in my time with the Lord, I don't kneel and sit. I can't do that. I, I pace, man. Me and Jesus having a walk. I'm getting my steps in, you know, and I'm just playing worship music. I'm contending, right? That's how I focus. So, so get rid of, kind of reframe all the stuff that you just have to sit still and you have to take your notes and all that stuff. Uh, what if the Lord wants you to... You know, what if the Lord wants to connect you and connect with you in a unique way? So, so rid ourselves of distraction and reframe the way we go about our devotional life. We're seeking the Lord. We're not seeking the disciplines. And lastly, what we see here is this, and I'll conclude, is Peter and Cornelius, they respond immediately to his voice. They respond immediately. And their obedience, like, 
the Lord comes, and he comes in kind of mysterious ways through an angelic vision and then through a vision given to Peter. And they respond. They discern as the voice of the Lord, their sovereign, and they respond with immediate sacrificial obedience. Cornelius immediately had to lose resources, servants and soldiers of his, that on his own dime, right, went and had to travel that he paid for. He paid for a sacrificial obedience. And then what we see with Peter is Peter sacrificed everything by listening to the Lord. He sacrificed his reputation with his, uh, his Jewish brothers. I mean, talk about cancel culture. If they found out that he fellowshiped with, Gent- with Gentiles, I mean, that's a big, big no-no. That's a big deal. But Peter obeyed immediately and sacrificially. And... Um, I think one of, the, one of the things I want to pose before you before I wrap up with Revelation 19 is this. If we as a people want to seek the Lord's face and we want to hear his voice, and his voice can sound like, his voice he's spoken finally and authoritatively in the scriptures, but the voice of the Holy Spirit can sound like inner thoughts, um, inner, internal audible voice, promptings, impressions, so on and so forth, visions. We, that's all in scripture, okay? It's all in Acts, okay? Um, but as we begin to seek the Lord and seek his voice, we also have to be ready for when he tells us to do something we don't want to do. Because often as you seek the Lord and you hear his voice, he might tell you something that's extremely difficult. He might tell you, he might reveal an idol that he's going to rip out of your hands. Right? And so this past week, uh, three weeks ago, I was at a conference in Oklahoma City. And um, I had this powerful encounter with the living God. The Holy Spirit fell upon me. Power. I'll use biblical language. We see this in the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament. Our God is alive. Holy Spirit falls upon me. I hit the floor. And immediately, I get a vision. And it's of my five-year-old daughter. I was not asking for a vision. I was not seeking a vision. The Holy Spirit came upon me. And all of a sudden, I'm seeing my five-year-old as an 18-year-old. 18-year-old, 19-year-old, in, in that in-between between high school and college. And she's being prayed over. And I know in the vision, she's being prayed over to be sent overseas as a missionary. Whether that's going to happen, Lord, let it be, or not, it's just a picture of Lord, Lord calling me to start discipling my kids to missionaries. I'm just like, whoa, I see this clear as day. Clear as day. And I ask the Lord. I, 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 I'm like, all right, let me pray into this. And I ask the Lord in this moment. I say, Lord, I don't, I, something to this effect, I don't know the first thing about raising a missionary. How am I, if this is the calling that you have on my beloved five-year-old, how do I disciple her to that end? And you want to know what I heard clear as day? A, a clean conscience before God sharing this, the Lord spoke clear as that. He says, you disciple her in love and nothing else. Verbatim. You disciple her in love and nothing else. If I'm trying to just raise a good Christian girl, then I'm going to have her memorize scripture, attend church, go to the Bible, point her. If, I'm, if we're trying to raise mid in the church, and, and, and this is just a revelation, I'm not coming, I'm coming with you, not over you, okay? If, we're, if, we're, if, I'm, if I'm called to disciple my kids to be missionaries, then everything hinges on love. Love of Jesus, so much love for Jesus that if he calls her to go overseas, to dangerous, hostile places, she'll go out of love for Jesus and love for the loss that wrecks her heart that she's willing to go and lay down her life as well. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. If we're going to disciple our kids, yes, man, everything I shared, have them do that, but but. Don't let that be a dead end. All roads lead back to love of Jesus and love for others. That is central 
central. And if you're doubting that encounter and saying it was, maybe I don't think you are, but maybe some builders should say that was demonic. Tell them, riddle me this, why were the demonic? <laughs> Give me that vision of raising a missionary to send overseas as my daughter and then, and then, and then lining up perfectly with the greatest commandment, right? That was, that was lock and step the Holy Spirit. That, that, watch this, in that moment, in that moment of prayer, and the Lord shows up, completely changes the tra- trajectory of my discipleship in my home. Completely changes the trajectory of discipleship of my kids. I mean, earth, earth-shattering. I go, oh my goodness. That's it. If that's not it, then I don't know what is. That's it. Disciple her in love and nothing else. Because here's why. There's a marriage, there's a wedding coming. The marriage supper of the Lamb. A great banquet. And Jesus wants as many people there as possible. And I'm going to read this and then conclude with this thought. Revelation 19, 6-9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, watch this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lord sovereign himself you're here today in Christ Jesus. He has moved heaven and earth to make sure you're there at his table with him. And the simple invitation he says is, now beloved, do I have your heart? And will you be used by me wherever I tell you to go and whatever I tell you to say to go invite others to the feast that you've been invited to? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you for your kindness, Lord. In certain ways, this was a heavy message. And I just pray, uh, Lord Jesus, that um, you would come, Holy Spirit, and comfort and convict. Do that beautiful work, of both, both convicting us of, of our sin, but also comforting us with the love and the grace and the mercy of the Lamb of God slain for our sins. And Lord, uh, we respond as we should always respond when we open up your scriptures. We respond with repentance and, and faith, God. And so we open up our hearts to you in these last couple minutes of the service. And we say, Holy Spirit, come. Come and search our hearts for any way in us that is opposed to your love and your lordship in our lives. Father, where we need to be reframed in our thinking and our understanding of what it means to follow you and and love you and serve you, would you rewire our minds? Would you renew our minds, God? And Lord, I do ask, God, for those here who have been wrestling with the tension of I've been contending, I've been seeking, and I haven't heard his voice, I haven't felt his presence, God, would you draw near to them as they draw near to you, God? Would you show up in our lives in such wonder and grace and power that we would never doubt your presence again in our lives, God? Comfort your people. Holy Spirit, I pray, Lord, that you would fall upon us, God. 
pour out your love into our hearts, a love that gets a focus off of ourselves and legalism and license and gets our focus onto the love of our king and that love manifesting outward and love of our neighbor, love for the bride, love for others, God. As you lay down your life for us, we want to lay down our life for others, for the glory of your name, Jesus. And Lord, we say, save us, God. Save me of all people, Lord God. Me, uh, the, the chief of sinners, Lord. Save us, God, from the comforts and the lies of the American dream, God. Do whatever it takes, God, for us to yield to you in obedience wherever you're calling us to, Lord Jesus. So we come before you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, you're present with us today. And we say thank you for giving everything to us. And our response this morning to the best of our abilities by the power of the Spirit to say, and in return, Jesus, we give everything back to you. How else could we respond to your love? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.